Proverbs chapter 25 this evening. We pick up right at the beginning of the 25th chapter, and you notice at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 25, it tells us that these are uh, also the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Now, when we started our study in the book of Proverbs, we mentioned that back in 1 Kings chapter 4, the Bible actually tells us there that Solomon, during the time of his life, by receiving the wisdom of God's Spirit, recorded and wrote down actually 3,000 or over 3,000 Proverbs. Now, obviously, we do not have every one of them. We have a collection of them that God, by His Spirit, uh, chose to retain for us. And it seems here, as we get to chapter 25, this section, uh, we're indicated that these are apparently some additional Proverbs of Solomon whether they were passed on in oral form or whether they were recorded and then perhaps discovered and compiled, but the men of Hezekiah were those who actually, King Hezekiah under his reign, who recorded these things. So you're talking a few centuries between the reign of Solomon and Hezekiah. But, you know, what a beautiful thing to see, as in all the scripture writers, really, that these men, again, we don't have anything of their name, But God knows their names, but the Bible tells us, thankfully, that they, these men, they copied these scriptures down. So they chose to write down and record things that ultimately became a part of the uh, canonized, spirit-inspired portion of God's word that we get, that we benefit from, because these men faithfully decided to copy these things and write them down. And again, I don't think when these men perhaps were writing these things, they were knowing, wow, I wonder if this is going to become spirit-inspired scripture, if these are actually going to be things that make it into uh, you know, what became the canon of the word of God that you and I have. But here they just were faithfully recording things to pass them on, writing things down, uh, and then you and I end up receiving the benefit of that. And it just reminds me again of how many times we think some of the maybe insignificant things that we do really may not have impact when the reality is here, these men, we don't even know their names. They get no credit. Uh, God knows their names and what seemed maybe to be a small and insignificant thing they were doing, maybe even somewhat of a menial task. I mean, really, they were just, they were just transcribing things. They were just copying things over, uh, but yet nonetheless, the great benefit. So again, don't, don't ever diminish anything that you do for the Lord Uh, Nothing is meaningless. Remember, Jesus said even a cup of cold water uh, given in his name has purpose, and the Lord recognizes that. And many times I think some of the smaller things we do end up having a much larger impact than we realize. And I can't help but to wonder sometimes if some of the bigger things that we thought we did, maybe those are the things that really didn't have as much impact. Uh, I always remember the reality that some of the most uh, paramount statements, the authoritative uh, statements of Jesus, some of the most familiar statements that we know of our Lord, they were made in conversations with just individuals. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life and that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved where Jesus talked about no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. That wasn't a sermon. That was actually a conversation. That was just Jesus taking the time to speak to one man who was religious, 
but knew still, though he was very religious in his routines, was not in right relationship with God. And that one conversation with an individual, look at the impact that that has had. I mean, that statement, those words of Jesus, and how vital they've become to Christianity, to the salvation of so many people. And again, wasn't a sermon to one of the crowds that he spoke to, though he did do that. It was just that one-on-one conversation. Might have seemed small, but the expanded impact of it was really great. So really wonderful uh, Proverbs we have ahead here. Verse 2 gives us the first of these Proverbs of Solomon, which they recorded. It tells us it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. The idea is to, to keep something from being seen fully or understood. It's the glory of God, of his greatness, to be able to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings he says, is to search out a matter. So it seems to be the idea here that part of the greatness of God is that it gives him, in his greatness and all of his glory, the awesome and mighty God that he is, it gives him both the right and privilege to conceal understanding about certain matters as he may choose, whether that's to conceal certain things about himself or his nature aspects of God's person that are so incredible, uh, so complex, so wonderful that though we understand parts of it, that there are aspects of God that, that we don't fully know and understand even still because of his greatness and because he is so infinite and awesome. Again, the Bible tells us that for all of eternity, we'll be discovering more and more that in the ages to come, we'll be discovering more of his grace. So again, we think that we're learning a lot now in our Christian life and studying the word of God and we're getting to know God better as we're growing. And the reality is for all of eternity, there will be a part of a process where we see more and more and understand more fully there in our glorified bodies. We're able to see things that these eyes could never see and hear things that these ears could never possibly hear, to understand things with glorified brains that are able to be comprehended about God. And again, in this time period, part of the greatness of God is it gives him that right and privilege to conceal him, whether it's something about himself, maybe of his ways, or of his creation. I mean, we're constantly learning more about science and, you know, things about the human body and how things work in plant life and animal life and the hydraulic system and weather pattern. And we're constantly researching and learning, but we're always continuing to discover more. Again, God created all these things in their complexity, set them into order, and there are so many things that we still don't understand. That's why even those who are very gifted and very experienced, even the medical profession, say we're practicing Medicine, you always catch that word there, practicing, meaning that even very highly educated people acknowledge there is so much complexity to this human body that even in their best efforts and good intentions and incredible education and years of experience, they're still trying to figure out everything about this complex human body that God created that were fearfully and wonderfully made. And so again, one of the amazing things about God is it is his glory and his greatness that gives him that right and privilege to, in a sense, conceal understanding about certain matters because God and his ways are so infinite and awesome and complex. You might fairly say he could not possibly explain everything to us. There's no way we'd be able to comprehend it. Uh, There's no way that we'd fully be able to grasp everything. That means there's always going to be a degree of mystery and unknown as we lack full awareness and don't grasp everything perfectly 
while in these human bodies and during this life. And look, that's actually a very good thing to recognize because that forces us to live humbly by faith. And it allows us to keep a proper perspective of the incredible gap between God's infinite nature and who he is and us as finite, limited human beings and recognize how insignificant we are in comparison to God. It says in Romans 11, verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So again, notice God's word directly declares so great the wealth, the depth of his wisdom, of his knowledge, and how unsearchable his judgments, the way he does things, how he operates, what he chooses to do at times, why he operates in the way that he does, what he allows, what he does, what he does not do, and how he does things, that we have to trust and yield to his supreme rulership as a good and wise king in faith and humbly recognize that his ways to a degree are past finding out. So there will always be a degree of mystery and wonder in regards to us and our relationship with God, and that's okay. And in some ways, that's actually a healthy thing. To me, it starts to become concerning when some people are so aggressive about wanting to understand everything about God and his operation this way and that way and nail everything down and understand everything perfect and become so dogmatic. It's almost as if somehow they, they, they have to prove that somehow they're a little finite mind because they want to hold to a strong doctrinal position about something and that they have a grasp on certain things and, and fail to recognize sovereignty. Are you, are you kidding me, man? There's always going to be a degree of mystery. Uh, no one is ever going to grasp everything perfectly, and part of that is for our own humility and to cause us to live in faith and just yielded to, to the awesomeness of God and to realize how insignificant and limited that we are, that we'll never fully understand everything. And that's part of God's glory and his greatness, the writer says here, that wise people, he's indicating, realize that that's part of God's right and privilege, that, that we're not going to have God explain everything to us in this life, and we're never going to be able to fully grasp everything. We, we can grasp enough, and he's told us a whole lot. This has been keeping me busy since 1992, since the day I got saved, and I still don't grasp it all. In fact, the longer I walk with the Lord and the more I study God's word, all I discover is how much more I don't know. Uh, I don't find like, like I know more. I feel like I know less the further I go. Because you see and recognize more of the greatness of God and, and who he is. Now, in connection to that, he then says the second half of the proverb, but yet it's the glory or greatness of human kings, that is the highest ranking of men, again, with all resources at their disposal, those who can help them. He says, it's the glory and greatness of kings to be able to search out a matter. So part of the greatness of the capacity and opportunity that we have as human beings and human rulers on the highest level have the greatest opportunity with the wealth of resources at their disposal to do research and have people help them is that they're able to search out and discover greater understanding on certain matters. So he says it's the greatness of a king to be able to really search out a matter and to fully understand it, to have greater light and insight to be able to handle matters more effectively, and it's a great thing when men admit, knowing the first part of the verse and the second, that we don't know everything, yet we're called to seek God and to try and do what we can to pursue further revelation, to understand more fully, and that as God gives us light, the more we search out and understand matters, we're able to handle them more properly. Like a king and a ruler, we're able to make better decisions the more we seek out 
to understand matters more fully. And again, so that in a sense becomes our human responsibility. Will we ever arrive? No. But yet we have been given this wonderful capacity by God to be able to search things out and to learn and to grow. I mean, think of how many things we've learned through research and science. And I mean, it's just a wonderful capacity that God's given to us to be able to seek him, whether it's in creation or knowing more about God spiritually, uh, that we know things better in handling our affairs. Verse 3, he then goes on to say, and as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the highest of the heavens, to the deepest depths of what the earth contains, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Now, here he seems to be speaking of how there's, again, sort of a gap as well between those who are ruling as kings. So, again, the idea here is those who are rulers, those who are making decisions on behalf of those who are their subjects or who are following them, uh, the, the leaders of the time. Uh, and here the idea is that there will always seem to be this gap of never fully understanding the judgments of those in places of leadership because of, again, the gap in distance between what they're handling, what they're dealing with, and those who they're ruling and governing over as well. So he pictures this idea here as the heights in the heavens, that is, there are things in the heavens that are way higher than any of us can see, right? There are things that exist things that are going on that are way over our heads that we can't fully see. And so we don't understand them. We don't even know what's going on in the heavens, the stellar heavens, the eternal heavens, but they're going on. Things are happening. We just can't see it, and we're not fully able to grasp it because it's above our heads, if you would, as well as in the depths of the earth. There are things that are happening in the depths of the earth, miles down in oceans. There are things going on, but we can't see them because they're way too deep for us. And we don't fully understand them because we're not engaged and involved in them. And so he says, in the same way that that is true literally in a physical sense, because we're not connected to these things above our heads and so deep that we don't see and that we're not involved in fully and we lack understanding, in the same way, he says, there are certain things regarding the hearts of kings that are unsearchable. The idea there is there are certain things that go on in the heart of a king or the heart of a ruler, or we might say the heart of a leader, which are way higher, that are above our heads, that we don't fully know all the details about. There are things that are taking place in the life of a ruler or a life of a leader where there are things happening and parts to things and things going on and decisions, and, and, and they're much deeper than what we see on the surface, right? And so we see on the surface what we see. Why is that ruler making that decision? Why'd that leader come up with that idea? And the reality is there are much higher and deeper things that we're not seeing on the surface. And he's saying there's a part of that where it is wise to recognize that no matter how transparent a leader may try and be to keep people informed, there's always still going to be a gap between the subjects or the followers and the leader. It's just a reality in the same way we don't fully, from the first verse, you know, grasp everything that's going on with God in the same way. In a lesser way, that reality goes on. And that is why it is true that you know, leadership is a lonely place because there's an aspect of that where you're dealing with things that others aren't aware of, they're not seeing, they're dealing with things at times that you know, there, there are deeper things going on than what everybody in the common general population is aware of. And because of that, you're aware of that and you're processing that and factoring that into how you're trying to maybe come to conclusions or make judgments as a leader or a ruler, but everyone else isn't connected to that. 
And so all they're doing is looking on and, and perhaps in a sense wondering, well, where did that decision come from? Or why would you make that particular choice? And some of that is just that disconnect that exists. So again, that's why it's important to realize, you know, as a wise follower, to be supportive, to recognize there are always more things going on than just what I see on the surface. And to give to a degree the benefit of a doubt, if you have a, a leader in your workplace or a supervisor or a civil ruler or a spiritual leader or whatever it may be to realize, you know, there are sometimes things that I'm just not privy to, things that are, you know, above my head or things that are deeper that are happening that I'm just not aware of and, and I'm not going to always fully understand where those judgments come from. And to recognize that, I think, helps because it keeps us from, in a sense, just becoming, you know, kind of frustrated or always being, you know, suspicious or perhaps just wondering and questioning or even misinterpreting sometimes unnecessarily, where if we knew the other details, then maybe we, oh, that now that makes sense. The, the challenge is, is that we don't always have access to that information. Verse 4, he says, take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry and take away, verse 5, the wicked from before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. So verse 4, he describes what we often refer to as the, the smelting process where they take metals, subject them to severe heat to expose the impurities within that metal to cause it to rise to the surface and then to be removed from the metal to make the metal more pure, to increase its preciousness, to make it more valuable and more useful. And that's, of course, what he's describing here, that when something is valuable and important, like these precious metals, silver and gold and so forth, they actually subject it because it's precious. They subject it to a process to actually cause it to be further improved. And silver is already valuable, and gold is already valuable, and it's important and valuable because it's important and valuable, it gets subjected to a process to make it more valuable, to make it become more useful in its ultimate and intended purpose. So they subject it to what? Intense heat, intense pressure to do things, to reveal and to expose impurities, things that are not good hindrances within the metal and the heat and the pressure exposes those things so that those things can then be removed and that process makes that metal more valuable and useful to better fulfill its greater purpose and that's a process if you haven't picked up the analogy yet that often happens in our lives right the bible speaks about peter speaks about in his writing how our faith being more precious than gold how it's subjected to fiery trials right and because we're valuable and because we're precious and God wants us to be useful for his purposes, God will do a process in our lives where sometimes through intense heat and pressure and subjecting us to the fiery trials and pressures and difficulties of this life, and sometimes part of that is to expose some stuff in us that we need to see about ourselves sometimes. And it's only by the pressure and by the heat and when we go through those things that those things kind of rise to the surface and God reveals to us things about us that he says, this is an unhealthy thing in your life. This attitude or this tendency or this weakness or this you know, personality trait or this struggle with a particular area. And God kind of squeezes and exposes those things and he says, I want to get these things out of your life so that I can make you more valuable and more useful for my ultimate and intended purposes. Now, as he uses that analogy, he then goes on in verse 5 
with that same picture to say in the same way, take away the wicked, they as wicked men, evil counselors who were there in maybe the cabinet of the king, take away wicked men from before the king and his rulership, and the king's throne, he says, verse 5, will be established, made more successful and, and set up in righteousness. So again, that same fiery purification process of removing impure things that would weaken the precious metals or that would hinder the precious metals from their best usefulness, that same process, God says, sometimes that also has to take place not just in people's lives, but also has to take place sometimes in relationships. And here particularly refers to sometimes there's a necessity to take away wicked, unhealthy people among the presence of the king. So if the king has counselors around him that are not healthy, they're giving him bad input, they're giving him degrees of influence surrounding him that are not good, that are going to misguide him in his direction, then sometimes God may intervene through a little bit of turning up the heat and maybe putting the pressure on to expose some things, maybe about certain people that aren't too healthy, that God says, well, part of that process was because I was trying to get them away from a place of influence, control, and rulership so that the king's throne could be established. Sometimes, you know, even in partnership, sometimes people need to be removed. Sometimes that's a part of a process. It was a part of the process with the king, he says, removing unhealthy or sinful people from their influence of the leader helped establish the right path for the king because sinful, rebellious people can be a hindrance to righteous progress. And so sometimes, uh, in order for God to add, sometimes God first subtracts. Again, we see that in the book of Acts. You know, you read Acts chapter 5, where it says God subtracted Ananias and Sapphira from the church they, because they were in blatant hypocrisy. And so God subtracted, and then in Acts chapter 6, says God adds to the church. So sometimes before God adds, he has to subtract, just the way he does math. And so you may, Lord, why did you subtract this? Or why did you subtract that person? It may be God's way of saying, well, I needed to subtract so that I could properly add. Uh, and here he says, sometimes even for the king, that's a necessary process so that his throne can be better established in righteousness to go in right ways. Verse 6, he says, and do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and don't stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, that you get an invitation to come higher, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So verse 6 and 7 warn us of the error, we might say, of self-exaltation. And the foolish tendency that we all can have from time to time in temptation to kind of assert ourselves to push ourselves forward, to try and promote ourselves to a greater position or to a higher place and kind of to promote ourselves, to advertise ourselves. He warns here of this danger of seeking after a higher position. He talks about going and exalting yourself in the presence of the king, standing in the place of the great, again, knowing, hey, well, I, I want to kind of mingle and mix with these other great people because if I can be like them, then I can, you know, kind of arrive to the same status and so forth. And again, that's only due to, of course, we know. It's just due to our own human pride and typically just self-serving desires that are within all of our hearts, maybe to, to want to feel important or to look important 
or to achieve greater success prematurely or just longing maybe to be in charge. And so that's why we're kind of exalting ourselves. We just want a, a place where we can feel a little more prominent and tell a few more people what to do. But look, God says here, don't do that. Don't, that's not wise, he says. That's foolish, in fact. Don't exalt yourself in the presence of the king and go stand in the place of the great. He said, the better thing to do is to humbly what? To just humbly go, he says, and, and take the lower place and wait for the king, for the one above you to say to you in an invitation, hey, how about you come up here to a higher level? How about you take this greater position? And for them to invite you to a higher degree of influence or position, better to humble ourselves before God and before people and to come into a situation, again, whether it's in a job place, whether it's you know in an organization, whether it's in the church, whether it's in some ministry platform, to just go and say, what is the absolute lowest place possible? What are the lowest possible people doing around here? And to just go and find that, and with a humble servant-hearted attitude, just begin to go and faithfully serve, just with a servant-hearted spirit and humility, and wait for the Lord to put it on the heart of the king, of the leader, of the overseer, to then invite you to come higher to ask you to step forward and to take on a, a greater responsibility rather than you being, he says, rebuked in an embarrassing way and put in your place before all the rest of the princes where the king says, uh, what are you doing up here? This is the major leagues. You're down in double A still, buddy. What, what are you doing? Do you want to you go all the way down a little league or just, no, I'll take double A. And he says, you, you don't want to go through that. And that's a very awkward and an embarrassing thing. He says, wait to be asked to do greater things rather than be humbled because you try to push yourself towards greater things. Again, Jesus said much the same in Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 11. I'll read you his words in a very similar way. Jesus said it this way in Luke's gospel. It says, he told a parable to those who, when they were invited, he noted, Jesus did, how they went in and they chose the best places. That is, they went and took the best seats uh, there when they were invited. And he said, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding or a feast, don't go in and sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, uh, excuse me, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame or embarrassment to go take the lower place because the more important prominent person came in and they ask you to get out of his seat and go sit somewhere else. He says, verse 10, but when you are invited, go in, sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, notice again, he may say to you, again, initiating, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And then Jesus said the summary of that, verse 11, Luke 14, 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself, Jesus said, will be exalted. So again, a very important principle, a wisdom principle, as well as Jesus even said a spiritual principle of how we're to operate in the same way that Jesus did. Again, remember, the cross always came before the crown, right? Jesus suffered and bore his cross first in humility and in humanity and as a servant, gave up everything, gave up his reputation, and went to the lowest place, and then what happened afterward, then he was exalted to the highest place. 
And so again, that's our pattern as the Lord is working through our lives. So again, just great wisdom as we relate uh, to those around us. Verse 8, and do not hastily go to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another. Don't share what's going on with others, lest he who hears expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. So verse 8 here speaks really of being careful to not be foolish in initiating disputes with other people. Are disputes going to happen in life? Yes. Are disagreements or things like that and debatable, disputable matters going to happen? Of course. But here the proverb is saying, look, be wise. Don't be somebody who initiates disputes. Because he says, if you become someone who's initiating disputes, the warning is, if you're too quick to strongly accuse someone else of what they're doing wrong, he says, you may find from time to time that that comes back around to bite you because he says, if you go rushing hastily to court trying to prove someone else is wrong, that is quick to accuse another person. Maybe when you don't have all the facts, you don't have all the information, but you are certain that you are certain that they are wrong. And you rush in and he says, and you, you're quick to kind of you know, bring accusation. He says, what are you going to do in the end? The idea is when further disclosure and discussion and you know, the facts come to the surface and the fuller picture is seen, and this happens sometimes, then when your neighbor, who you were trying to accuse, ends up putting you to shame because actually you were one the wrong because you too quickly came to a, a speculative, preconceived decision without taking time to kind of vet the situation first. And he says, that's, that's really embarrassing. So he recommends the better thing to do. He says, look what he says, verse 9, debate your case with your neighbor and don't disclose the secret to another. In other words, same thing that Jesus said. When you have an issue with someone, go to that person between you and him alone. If you think something's happened or a scenario has transpired, don't instantly start you know, you know, building your jewelry and, and getting all your witnesses lined up to prove you. No, just go to them individually. Uh, and don't go sharing it with other people. Just talk to them one-on-one. Don't bring the matter into public light until you properly work through it one-on-one, lest you end up, he says, exposing your own shameful mistake, because that happens sometimes. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. And he says, then your shame is exposed. In verse 10, he says, and then your reputation can be ruined. And look, that, that's a, a dangerous thing, you know, to, to have our reputation be ruined because I don't know about you, but what I've seen is it involves a real process to establish a good reputation in this life. That's not an overnight thing. To establish a credible reputation, a good, healthy reputation and command the respect of other people that you've worked hard to earn, that's a process, And it's a process to obtain it, but boy, it's amazing how fast you can tarnish that and ruin it. And when when a reputation has been ruined in foolish actions or ways of someone behaving, he describes there, verse 10, your reputation being ruined. Anyone who understands that experience knows it is a hard process to rebuild your reputation. That's a difficult thing. It's not that it can't be done. But it's a hard journey and a hard road to rebuild your reputation if your reputation has been tarnished or ruined. Verse 11, he says, in a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. This reminds us of other verses in the Bible where it talks about speaking a word in season. The idea is a precise, 
timely word, a word fitly spoken. The idea there is, is a word that, that is spoken in such a way that it fits the timing and it's just the right words that fit the given situation and what's going on with the person there. It describes the value like apples of gold and settings of silver. Again, it pictures there's something valuable and beautiful and how there's something very valuable and something very beautiful when somebody is able to, with wisdom, say just the right thing, but listen, more than that, just the right thing at the right way and at just the right time. Because a lot of times we can say the right thing, but we say it the wrong way, right? We've all been there, done that. Or there are other times we may say the right thing, but we say it at the wrong time, right? And that doesn't work either. And he says there's something really beautiful and valuable and precious when we're able to have wisdom and discernment from the Lord to walk in such a way to be perceptive and discerning and to understand the dynamics of what's going on and to speak a word that's the right thing at just the right time and to go about saying it in just the right way where it so fits the situation and, and it's like, man, that, boy, that was exactly the right thing to say at the right time and, and it was in the right way. And there's great value to being able to do that and I believe at times God puts those timely words upon our hearts and again, he wants us to be sensitive to that but it requires wisdom from God to not behave foolishly with our mouths and to try and use our words with wisdom in precise ways. He then says, verse 12, also like an earring of gold in an ornament of fine gold, again, this precious, valuable thing, he also adds, is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. So notice, it's also very beautiful and valuable when an insightful, helpful, we might say corrective word is spoken into a situation or into someone's life. And when that corrective word is offered, but not just offered, but he says also when it's well-received by an obedient, receptive ear. So he pictures here two things that require wisdom and two things that are valuable and important. The first thing that requires wisdom and that is very valuable and very important, he says, is to be someone who's not noticed just a rebuker, where you feel like that that's your job to just go around and beat everybody up in the body of Christ, and I'm called to just rebuke everybody. I'm the sin sniffer in the church. That's what I do. I sniff it out, and then I rebuke everybody. No, notice he says they're a wise rebuker. Again, is there a time to confront? Yes. Is there a time to challenge someone, to, to kind of correct at times if necessary? Absolutely but there's a wise way to do that. Remember what he just said in the verse above, a word fitly spoken. <laughs> there's a wise way to do that. And he says, it takes real wisdom to know at times when to not be afraid to challenge someone, when to not be afraid to just speak the truth, even if it kind of maybe does ruffle their feathers a little bit. If someone needs to be challenged or you just should speak the truth to confront or challenge instead of go away and be frustrated afterwards, sometimes that's, you know, it's just the, the right thing to do. And he says, but it takes wisdom to know when's the right way to do that. And that's a valuable thing when someone realizes, hey, this, the wise thing to do here would just, I need to challenge this person on this. I need to confront them here. And sometimes that's something God calls us to do with a relationship or in a conversation. But the other thing that's wise, as well as valuable and precious, like a precious metal, he says, 
is when that wise rebuke is given, sometimes we're on the other end of that, right? And he says, when we have an obedient ear, the idea is when someone confronts or maybe challenges something in our life, whether it's our spouse or another brother or sister in the Lord or someone who kind of just challenges the way we're thinking or tries to offer a little corrective you know, guidance to us, that we have an obedient, receptive attitude to that. And we don't, in pride, just shut it down or, or just get our feelings hurt. Oh, I hurt my feelings. And, but the Bible says faith for the wounds of a friend. And so sometimes it's a healthy thing. We don't always want people to tell us what we want to hear. We want people to tell us what we need to hear. And so sometimes, look, if that's what happens, we got to have a little thicker skin sometimes and not internalize and take everything personal, but just say, you know what, I need to have an obedient ear to that. Uh, and maybe that's something God wants me to be responsible to. And he says that's wisdom to be able to do that. He goes on, verse 12, to say, like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. So here he describes this picture in verse 13 of really how gratifying and kind of refreshing it is, he says, just like in the cold of snow in the time of harvest. Now, the picture there seems to be in harvest time, they're out harvesting the fields, it's hot work, they're exhausted, they're drained, and it was a very refreshing thing if someone was able to go up to the mountain area and to bring down some of the snow from that area, to bring it down, to really cool off the water, to cause the water that was being you know, used to quench the thirst, it added to the refreshment and the relief of the worker. So it's a picture of something. It's just very refreshing experience. And he says that is a picture of how it is so wonderful, it's refreshing to find someone who's a reliable individual. That's the picture here in our proverb. It's so refreshing. It's such an enjoyable thing, he says. Such a relief, like the hot worker getting a cold drink when he's exhausted. It's such a relief to find a faithful messenger to those who send him. For look, he refreshes the soul of his masters. That is those who he, in a sense, serves under. So again, it's a picture of someone when given an assignment when given a role, when they're asked to you know, convey a message or to complete a task, that they do such in a faithful manner, proving that they're reliable, following through, carrying out the task, being dependable, doing what was asked of them, not dropping the ball, but finishing the project, carrying things to completion. Again, it pictures reliability and how being a reliable person brings great relief to those who are depending upon you. And again, this is wisdom. Wise people seek to be reliable people. Because when people are relying upon us, whether it's in our jobs or our families or our spouses or our children, or if it's the Lord relying upon us to be a faithful messenger of his word or to do tasks and assignments, again, what we want to be above all else is faithful. We want to be dependable and reliable. And that's something that God wants of all of us. And he says it's such a relief to find those who are just good, reliable, faithful to what they're assigned to do. Verse 14, and whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. So again, the picture there in an agrarian society, when it was 
hot times and they really needed the rain to come and maybe it was a drought that was going on for a few days or a season when those storm clouds would come rolling in and they'd sense the wind that was indicating the promise of much needed rain and everybody would get excited hey those clouds look like they're going to promise a good nice storm that we really need it's going to give us the rain that we need but then sometimes what happens with storm clouds they just <laughs> they just blow by and they never deliver right they, they look like they're going to promise something, but then they never deliver on what it looks like they're indicating they're going to do or what they're promising. And that causes great disappointment because they never deliver what was expected of them or what they indicated they were kind of promising by their appearance. Well, he says, in the same manner is like someone who falsely boasts of giving. The idea here is someone who makes false promises. Someone who promises they're going to do something, says they're going to take care of something, commits to, to taking you know, something on, and then they don't follow through. And, and you know, all of us in this room, to some degree, have some wound somewhere in our life as the direct result of someone falsely boasting of some promise or thing they were going to do or something they were going to give, and then they never followed through. And, and we've all been the end of that of someone falsely making promises, whether it's children being hurt and disappointed by parents, or, or I mean, parents being hurt and you know, children being hurt and disappointed by parents that don't follow through, or again, just times where maybe a spouse did it or a friend did it. And you know, we have to be careful because as human beings, we can have this tendency sometimes where we, we, we talk a great game and we, we, I'm going to do this, or I'm, I'm going to commit to that, or I'm going to give this, and I'm going to help in that way, or I'm going to do this thing. And whether it's giving of our time or our talent or our resources or just something that we say we're going to do, and then we don't follow through with what we've said, and we don't keep our promise, and we fail to deliver, and we create great disappointment, and we talk a great game but don't do what we say. And look, we should not say, God's reminding us, if we want to be wise people, we should not say we're going to do things and then not follow through. That, that shouldn't be something that's a part of our lives. Wise people recognize if you're going to say you're going to do something, then you need to be committed to carry it out and to bring the follow-through because it brings great disappointment when we become an unreliable person and we lack dependability. It lets people down, and that can really harm people, and that can really cause great difficulty if they were depending upon us, whether emotionally or from circumstantial thing or whatever it may be. Again, we have to be careful because sometimes we just want to appear like we're, we're doing all these things. You know, people even do that financially. They want to appear like they're, you know, they're, they're such a giver and they act like they're such, and then they never do. <laughs> it's just all that appearance. Uh, and they falsely, in a sense, make promises of things they don't even really do. God says, don't do that. Verse 25 or 15, excuse me, by long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. So notice, wise people, he says, verse 15, this speaks of understand you don't have to be pushy and harsh or even aggressive or shout in order to be heard or to change a heart or to make a breakthrough in someone's life or maybe even to overcome their reluctance in some way that you wish to, whether it's a leader or someone who has control that you don't. Sometimes he's saying here, it's wiser to just be patient. Look, by long forbearance, the ruler's persuaded. Not by constant pushing and, 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 you know, and patronizing and, and picketing, and you know, by long forbearance. 
Yet is just patiently waiting things out. Sometimes wisdom realizes you got to let someone wrestle and work through things, maybe just that they need to go through. And that may be a part of a process. And in time, they may then see things longer and be persuaded to change after you just give them some patience and you just wait it out and let them wrestle through some things they got to wrestle through. And sometimes, he says, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Just a gentle word. Again, the idea there is just speaking the truth in love in a gentle way that sounds you know, kind and avoids offense. And he says sometimes that can actually be what brings the breakthrough. You know, a lot of times as people, we do the opposite. You know, we, we just, we talk louder and we say more and we push harder and we become verbally aggressive and we think, oh, I'm going to make a breakthrough. I just, I got to make the breakthrough here. And, and, and God says, no, a gentle tongue. Again, because when, when we get aggressive with our words, a lot of times what that does is backfires because then people just shut us off because they get offended or angry. And so they find an excuse to just shut us off. And maybe what we're saying is something they really need to hear. Maybe it's the gospel message we're sharing, or maybe it's some wisdom or just some area where there needs to be a breakthrough and they're seeing something wrong. And, and, and what we can do is sometimes give them an excuse to just shut us down because of the way that we went about saying it. But see, if you just, in gentleness and in love and in composure, just speak the truth in love, then you don't give them anything to wrestle with, but that thing that's the nagging truth in their head, and they got to wrestle with that. And eventually, guess what happens? God brings the breakthrough. And God brings that breakthrough. And just like you can't, in a sense, you can't ignore a broken bone, in time, it's hard for people to keep ignoring the truth if it's just been gently and honestly spoken to them. So again, very important to realize, you know, it's amazing. So often we think it's how loud we say something or how many times we say something. You know, I, I, I'm just be very candid. I, I see this sometimes you know, happen in, you know, podiums and pulpits of churches where people are, you know, they're, they're speaking and it's amazing how you have a conversation with them and they talk in one way and then they get behind the podium when they want to teach God's word or preach and all of a sudden they get a different voice, they get 75 volumes louder and you're thinking, well, is God deaf or something? Why are we having to, and, and it's almost like we're shouting to get our point across and God says, no, it's my word has power. You don't have to try and work things up and shout at people and motivate people. Just just speak the truth to people. And it's the word of God that brings the breakthrough. It's just that, you know, just a gentle tongue. I've listened to some individuals who are some of the most soft-spoken, composed individuals, and man, I listen to them, and you want to talk about a just a powerful breakthrough of the word of God that pierces your heart, and I'm thinking, man, just... Wow, because it's God that's bringing the breakthrough. It's the power of God's word and it's the power of God's spirit. That, that's what God wants us to rely upon ultimately. Verse 16, he says, have you found honey? Again, honey, remember, was nutritious. It was helpful for one's health and it was enjoyable. It was like a sweet in that day. You'd put honey on your bread. He says, eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Well, that's a picturesque way to kind of say the point there, isn't it? The idea there just speaks of use restraint and moderation, God's saying. Use restraint and moderation, even when indulging good things. Don't overdo it, God says. Take a measured approach. Honey's a good thing. It's enjoyable. It's beneficial. It's good for your health. But God says, but pace yourself. Even too much of any good thing, God says, it can start to get a little bit 
unhealthy, too much of anything can start to get unhealthy and make you despise it or start to get sick of it. So God says, even good things, restraint, moderation, that's a wisdom principle. Use restraint, maintain moderation in all things. Too much of anything is not good. Notice, even in relationships, verse 17, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Now, we know this in our own little proverb, which we basically say, don't wear out your welcome, right? Amazing how we get everything from God, isn't it? We think we're so smart. That's the idea of the proverb there. He says, seldom set foot. Again, we have to use wisdom and restraint and moderation even in our relationships. He says, don't disrespectfully monopolize all your neighbor's time. You know, maybe it is nice to talk to them, whether verbally or in visits, relationships. He's saying, don't abuse personal boundaries in relationships. Use restraint. Adequate interaction to show you care about someone, that's valuable, that's enjoyable. But don't overdo it in a way that you become a bothersome person, God's saying, where you actually begin to cause them to look at you as a high-maintenance individual where you start becoming bothersome and they actually start despising you because maybe you're monopolizing all their time in a disrespectful way or you're spending too much time interacting. So again, wise people find balance, God says, in conversations, in interactions, in visits. And what's one of the reasons a lot of times people go to their neighbors to ask for help? So let me say, I think another wise area to use restraint and moderation how often you keep asking for help for whoever that neighbor is for your life. God says, it's okay to ask for help once in a while, but use restraint there. Don't abuse. Hey, neighbor, can I have this? Hey, neighbor, can I borrow that? Hey, neighbor, and you're, please <laughs> ask someone else. And so God says, just, just use restraint. Just be careful in relationships, he says. Verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow. So those all speak of things that wound and cause harm. And the picture there in verse 18, any form of lying or saying untrue things about a person, God says it's hurtful. It's like whacking somebody with a club or cutting them with a sword or shooting them through with an arrow. So again, dishonesty brings painful damage into people's lives. It harms people. It ruins people's lives. Wise people never, ever underestimate the harm, pain, and damage that's done by lying. Don't ever diminish. So foolish. Don't ever diminish. What's the big deal? It's, no, God says it, it's very harmful. It causes a lot of pain and damage to people, any form of dishonesty. Verse 19, he goes back to this idea, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and like a foot out of joint. So this speaks again of the, the bothersome and burdensome reality, again, of a unreliable person. And particularly, you notice here, he talks about an unreliable person, he says, in the time of trouble. That's when you really need somebody to be dependable, right? When you're in a time of trouble and you're depending upon somebody, that is the last time ever that you want somebody to prove unreliable or undependable. When you're in trouble, you're really depending upon someone in a much greater way. And he speaks here how, how bothersome and burdensome it is when somebody proves to be an unreliable individual. 
and they're not dependable. He uses very picturesque language there, the problems it causes. He says that unreliable person who proves to be undependable, they're like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Boy, that's picturesque. Like a bad tooth. You know, that causes an extremely unpleasant experience when you're subjected to that, right? I mean, it just, it interrupts your whole life. It's not only frustrating and a hindrance and an inconvenience when you got a bad tooth that, you know, it kind of cripples you from normal function. It's costly. It ends up being just a real pain. And he says, that's what it's like when, when you're undependable. If we're undependable, he says, it's like a bad tooth or it's like a person who's got a foot out of joint and they're just kind of limping along. Again, they're, they're, they're struggling to get by. And so he says, why is this important? Because he says, being unreliable or being undependable, we actually end up not just disappointing other people, we, we can cripple people and hold them back and do things that really just cause a major unpleasant experience. And again, perhaps we've been on both sides of that before. We've dealt with someone who was undependable or they weren't reliable. And, the, you know, and we were depending upon them to do something or we were counting on them to be reliable and then they don't do such and, and it's that, like that unpleasant experience. Man, I'd rather have a root canal right now than deal with this because now there's frustration because of the unreliable behavior. And again, we want to be careful that we are not doing that to others as well. Verse 20, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, that would be incredibly cruel, right? And like vinegar on soda, that causes an intense reaction. If you want a science project for yourself, kids or grandkids, try that out. Like vinegar on baking soda, the picture is there, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So the idea here is just lacking sensitivity, failing to be compassionate and understanding. When someone has a heavy heart, right, maybe they're grieving uh, maybe they're depressed or discouraged. And he says, when somebody's got a heavy heart and they're down and they're out and they're going through a hard time, you don't come through the door whistling and singing happy songs. He says, that's completely insensitive. That's cruel. And he says, that's utterly foolish to behave in such a way. So it's that caution to not lack sensitivity but instead to use wisdom to understand how to act appropriately in difficult times in people's lives. Right? The Bible says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and what? To mourn with those who mourn. So look, if someone's rejoicing and they got a happy heart, whistle and sing them a solo. Go for it. But he says if somebody's got a heavy heart, don't be foolish and unsensitive. Pay attention to the situation what's going on in that season in their life, their disposition and what's happening. And he says, don't be foolish and overlook. There's a time not to be overly married. There's a time to be a little bit more sober and sensitive. Don't make light of the situation. Don't be cracking jokes and behaving foolishly. Be tender and be sensitive in those situations. Again, just wise ways of relating to people. Well, our time's eluded us. Let's stop there for this evening and we'll pray together.